Rebecca Adil here. Just a quick note to say thank you to everybody that's been rating the podcast on iTunes and everywhere else. It means the absolute world and I'm so grateful for all the five-star reviews. Keep them coming, please. That would be wonderful. Additionally, if you do fancy helping support the podcast, helping make it even better, we do have a Patreon account now and that's patreon.com slash killing underscore time and you can there become a Bow Street runner or a super sleuth. It's up to you. Anyway, on with the show. Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments in our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Radil and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into episode eight, Detectorists and Sutton Who with Mackenzie Crook. It's the summer of 1939, and Great Britain is on the cusp of entering World War II. Although, in a sleepy field near Sutton in Suffolk, England, you'd never know it. Here, an unassuming man named Basil Brown is about to make a discovery that will transform our understanding of early England. For the past year, he's been meticulously brushing, digging, mapping and documenting the contents of four ancient mounds. And right now, his attention is fixed on Mound 1, where he discovers large iron rivets. For the next few weeks, he painstakingly brushes away the earth to reveal an extraordinary 7th century ship burial, which came to be known as Sutton Hoo. Sutton Hoo is perhaps the most important English archaeological find of the 20th century, and it's remarkable for the fact that it was a local man that discovered it. Basil Brown was about as far removed from the likes of Howard Carter as you could get. To unravel the story and discuss the joy of archaeology, metal detecting and the English countryside, I'm joined by the BAFTA award-winning screenwriter, actor, director and creator of the most beautiful drama series of recent years, Detectorists. Mackenzie Crook. Welcome. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. How are you doing in quarantine? Well, not quarantine, but lockdown. I'm doing really well, actually. It kind of suits me down to the ground. I feel really lucky (laughs) just because I I got a new shed like workshop installed just before all the shit hit the fan. So I've got this little (laughs) oasis at the bottom of my garden. I'm just making stuff and writing. And yeah, I feel very lucky. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. I think there's a definite difference, isn't there? Because I'm I'm quite used to working from home myself as well, and right. it's kind of like I don't know. It's not too different, but you don't really no. want to shout about it too much because I know lots of people are um, really struggling and things. But exactly. Yeah. No, I'm feeling slightly guilty. You know, my my best friend lives just around the corner in a tiny little flat with with a balcony that gets sort of half an hour sunshine a day. Oh. Yeah. So you know that must be pretty miserable. But yeah. I'm such a huge, huge fan of detectorists. And Thank you. It, well, it's it's amazing. It's one of those programs that's just it's so sweet, gentle, but also 
it portrays the rawness of everyday real life so so well and I wonder how you came to the subject of detectoring the detect uh, metal detecting <laughs> <laughs> well it was yeah I mean I wasn't a detectorist I hadn't done any metal detecting before I before I came up with the idea it's something that I think had always fascinated me as I think it does all children the idea of this magic machine that can let you know what's under the ground that you can't see but it was an episode of time team that featured a couple of these guys these detectorists mm. and they just came across as such odd blokes <laughs> they were like very obsessive very insular in this very lonely hobby pastime and, and yeah they were very protective of their hobby and i just i, th I thought then that it, it would be a fascinating subject hobbyists and I started metal detecting myself and I discovered this incredible world, this incredible link to the past. And did you meet many of the groups that you were, um, you know, many of the metal detecting groups before you started writing? No, I didn't. And deliberately so. I didn't want to go and meet them and then sort of be tempted to, to you know, portray actual people in the um in the program so I deliberately kept away from from real life detectorists whilst I was writing it was only after the third series had finished I accepted an invitation to go out with some real life uh, detectorists and yeah I discovered they were quite as odd as I thought they were <laughs> <laughs> but lovely all the same I'm sure <laughs> yeah yeah eccentric eccentric and and, and yeah, yeah very very obsessed very knowledgeable about their hobby and yeah fiercely protective of it of course, it's a hobby that can come with huge rewards as well. So one of the biggest finds, or if not the biggest find in recent years, the Staffordshire Horde, was a result yeah. of metal detecting. So I wonder if you could tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, the Staffordshire Horde was discovered in 2009 by a man called Terry Herbert, which is a brilliant detectorist's name, I think. <laughs> you can, that's, that's great, Terry Herbert. And he discovered the largest horde of anglo-saxon gold and silver that's ever been discovered in the uk and there was over three thousand individual pieces of gold and silver worth over three million pounds and it was kind of what every detectorist is hoping to find it's the ultimate it's um been buried there for a reason in the past and for whatever reason that person didn't get to go back and, and collect it again. And it laid there for centuries and millennia and to be discovered by someone who was out looking for it. And it's just, yeah, that's what every detectorist is after. There is a kind of magic to it, isn't it? These, how these objects can be, they're, they're tangible links to a past that's, that's gone, but it's, it's still there and very present and buried waiting for us to kind of find these clues and piece together people's lives. Absolutely. And I touched on it in the third series of Detectorists talking about time travel. Lance says that Detectorists are the closest you can get to time travellers. And, and I, I really feel that sometimes when, because now I am a Detectorist, not, not as dedicated as, as the proper hobbyists, but, mm -hmm. but I do go out and, and it's all about the ghosts of the past and finding a link with those people long forgotten. And I mean, completely forgotten not even a memory of them exists but if you find their button or if you find their little bronze whistle as I did once so was, and I put this that scene in the in the third series of Detectorists I, I found this exquisite little bronze hawking whistle it was filled with mud and I poked out the mud with a piece of grass and then I blew it and I heard a sound from the past unheard for centuries and this piercing shrill that 
echoed across the field and back through time. And it was a proper connection with that person that had dropped that whistle just yards from where I was standing all those centuries before. And it was an incredible moment. Wow, that sounds, it is so, it's almost supernatural, isn't it? When you can have these links. I mean, I, I work with historical archives, so I'm not lucky enough to go out and I don't think I'd ever really know what to look for or what anything meant. But there's one document relating to Samuel Pepys, the diarist, and in the yeah. ink, there's his thumbprint. And you just think, wow, that's, you know, it, it just gives life to people, doesn't it? And to hear that sound, to blow that whistle, oh my goodness, that must have been a really poignant moment for you. Yes, no, it absolutely was. Yeah, and this is on a farm in, in Suffolk where we shot the second series, in fact. It's the only place I to go, but I have permission from the farmer there. Mm-hmm. And, and not far from that very spot where I found the whistle, I, I found my gold. I found a piece of Roman gold that was declared treasure. Uh, <gasps> and, uh, yeah, I mean, that would have come from a burial. You know, nobody just loses a piece of gold like that. That must have come from a burial somewhere around there. So what was it? What was it like? So how? So you you found? Did you have to dig deep to find this gold then? No, it was this. There's this old cliche story in with detectorists that it's always that the last signal on your way back to the car that's the important one of the day. And it was, and I never believed this story. I thought, but, um, <laughs> it was literally it was getting dark. I thought I, I'm going to wait for one more signal, and, and then I'm going to go. Got the signal, and it was too dark to see what it was. I thought it was a piece of foil. And it was when I got it home and cleaned it up that I realised that this was a piece of jewellery, gold, solid gold nugget. <gasps> it was either a pendant or an earring. It was, it was broken, but it was embossed with a, a design of a long-necked bird. And, yeah, I mean, how incredible to find that. And so, yeah, it was declared and, and went through the treasure process. And I got it back eventually. I asked Mackenzie about the history of his golden discovery. They think it's Roman and they think it was third or fourth century, so towards the end of the the Roman Empire. So, you know, we're talking 500 years older than the Staffordshire Horde. It strikes me that setting detectorists in Suffolk was apt in more ways than one. It was, of course, here that the iconic finds were made by Basil Brown. For me, the story of the discovery is just as exciting as the objects themselves, but I'm interested to know what Mackenzie makes of Sutton Hoo. I'm not an expert, I just, it's, it's fascinated me for as long as I've known about it. And it is a wonderful story. This woman, Edith Pretty, who owned Sutton Hoo House and the estate where these various mounds, burial mounds were, it, it turned out to be two Anglo-Saxon cemeteries. And most of these mounds that had contained very high status burials had been looted over the years, over the centuries, and nothing much was left. But the main mound, the mound, number one, as they called it, during the excavations, had remained undisturbed because it had been, well, it had been looted in past centuries, but by the time they went to raid it, the mound had been altered by ploughing. So where the looters went down the centre of the mound, knowing that the the treasures would be right in the middle, what they didn't know was that mound had been altered by ploughing, and in fact they were digging on the edge of it, and so they missed the treasure. So when Edith Pretty decided to excavate it, she got a man called Basil Brown. Brilliant name, brilliant name. I know, yeah, fantastic. He turned up on his bicycle with a trowel and just started to, <laughs> to dig in this mound. And he was ahead of his time. And, you know, he, was, he had a very sympathetic way of excavating it. 
And he soon started to find iron bolts, iron rivets, and realized that this was shit burial. And instead of taking these rivets out of the ground, he left them there and brushed away the sand meticulously and uncovered this 27 meter long ship that would have been rowed by 40 oarsmen. And in the middle of it, a burial chamber with what was undoubtedly a king. And there's some speculation as to who it was, but most agree that it was King Redwald of the East Anglians. And the treasure that was buried with him, the gold and garnets, is just, I mean, it's as good as Tutankhamun's tomb, really. It's, it's our English equivalent to that. Born in 1888 to a farmer and his wife, Basil Brown had been bookish since childhood, poring over astronomical text he'd inherited from his grandfather. Educational opportunities for someone of his means at this time were of course limited. Nevertheless, through a correspondence college, he'd earned diplomas in astronomy, geography and geology, and by 1939, he'd been practicing archaeology for a number of years. Writing to his wife, he described the Sutton Hoo discovery. It felt rather like digging into a small mountain. The middle vessel, he said, was... As wide as our small room at home. Then, on the 14th of June, he excitedly wrote to her, explaining how he had pushed my finger into a cavity. This may, of course, only contain bones, but I shall see very soon now. The grave goods included garnets from South Asia, textile woven in Assyrian style, coins from France, and silver from Constantinople. But there were no bones. The human remains had long gone. We know that Redwald lived from around 599 to 624. He was king of the East Angles and the first king of their number to become a Christian. But what had the world been like for him and the people who knew him so many centuries ago? Could you paint a picture of what that world would have been like in the 7th century, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, the early 7th century. I mean, it's, it's difficult to imagine. This was a time after the Romans had, had left. And presumably, when the Romans were here, there was order, there was a way of doing things, and there was this incredible new technology. And it, it's as if we res reverted back after they went, and the Saxons and, and the Angles came. It was like we took a step back, and this is a land of, I don't know, myth and legend and, and magic, and real magic that people believed in and was palpable. And warring kingdoms, you know, and the changing of power every few years. And it's almost unimaginable. If you were to have um, a time machine, do you think you'd like to visit this time or would you go somewhere else? I was thinking just that this morning. I think <laughs> that's definitely where I'd go. I'd like to see this burial taking place because it would have been spectacular. They hauled this ship up from the estuary up to the top of a hill to a pit that they dug into the ground and then, then covered it over. It would have been a spectacular spectacle. I imagine for someone with such a deep interest in this area, it must have been a real treat to work it into your writing. I'm absolutely fascinated by it. It's been an interest of mine for years. And to be able to work that into my work and script writing, that was quite a privilege to do that, you know, getting paid for doing my hobby. Um, <laughs> One of the things that I'd like to say for um, any listeners, is, and I'm almost envious of them, that in lockdown, if you haven't watched Detectorists, Oh my goodness, you're in for a treat. And it's just the perfect programme to watch when you're cooped up at home because it's all, it's just beautiful nature. I think half the shots are of um, grass and bees and flowers, aren't they? <laughs> That's it, yes. Yeah, no, it was, it was supposed to be a love letter to the English countryside. And thanks for saying that. Yeah, it's featured in a few lists of things to watch during lockdown. I think, yeah, because people are craving the outdoors and craving some space. Are we, are we going to get to see any more of Andy and Lance? I, I mean... 
I've, I've, I've got no plans to at the minute, but I, I, I honestly miss those two guys. And if a, if a good story occurred to me, I think Toby would be up for it. And um, yeah, so, so I'm, I'm not going to say never, but uh, no plans to at the moment. Oh, okay. Well, I'll keep my fingers crossed then. Listen, Mackenzie, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you today. Thanks, Rebecca. It's lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. In 1967, archaeologists at Sutton Hoo found traces of phosphate in the earth, which supported the view that the body had eroded away in the acidic soil. What is undeniable is that the finds at the site sit at the crossroads between pagan and Christian England. And when they were discovered, they challenged everything we previously thought about beliefs, burials and the way of life during the time. The treasures unearthed at the site, including the iconic helmet, are now on permanent display at the British Museum. As for Basil Brown, his interest in archaeology continued until he passed away in 1977. Today, his meticulously kept notebooks, photographs and drawings are preserved for posterity at the Ipswich Record Office. Mystery.